Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. Civil society is generally understood to be groups of organisations that are neither businesses nor governments. Groups such as schools, charities, cultural organisations. The role of civil society and why it is so important in helping to hold businesses and governments accountable is frequently written about in academic circles. But hearing firsthand what this actually means, perhaps less so. Meet my social impact pioneer guest today, Chelsea Hodkins. Chelsea is a policy advisor on Oxfam America's climate, energy and extractive industries teams. She is freshly back from the climate conference in Egypt and joins me today to talk freedom of speech, advocacy and activism. We are going to discuss the power of what policymaking done well looks like and why thinking differently about ways to do business is needed if we genuinely don't want to do more harm than good as we transition to hopefully greener energy solutions. So Chelsea, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Ah, pleasure to have you. And Chelsea, I wanted to start our conversation. You've just come back from COP27, so you were in Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt. There's been real mixed reviews from it. The media is obviously loves a good hook, etc. What was it actually like for you on the ground? And indeed, what sort of took you there in the first place? Yeah, thanks so much for this question. I mean, admittedly, I feel like I'm still processing the experience. This was my first COP, and I was a part of Oxfam's delegation. I work for Oxfam America, and Oxfam International was taking a group of people to be a part of the negotiations, to track them closely, to be part of the advocacy effort with other civil society organizations. And so I was there the second week. You know, it was really, it was a lot of things. I mean, it was logistically a lot of trying to be in two places at once, a lot of, you know, meetings changing because the negotiations and the decisions were constantly shifting because of, you know, one party had originally taken one position and then the next minute it had changed. But then there was also, you know, the emotional part of it. And there was a lot of conflicting emotions. There were a lot of moments of extreme possibility and hope. I think the the biggest one, which we can talk about later, was the final establishment after 30 plus years of advocacy and a really hard fought one at this COP for a loss and damage fund. And there was a lot of moments of, of disappointment, too. So I think that I'm coming out of this experience feeling really privileged to be able to see the process in person. And I think it was also a really big wake up call in a lot of ways, because the intersections of how climate change is the biggest human rights crisis intersects with other systems of oppression, including authoritarianism, which was on display at COP, was really brought home for me. 
so definitely still processing, but um, yeah, it, it was a lot. <laughs> and I mean, you particularly specialize in climate, energy, and the extractivist industry. So that kind of that particular intersection, Oxfam's obviously a traditionally a human rights charity, much more the human centered piece. What does therefore engaging with a climate COP process mean for your expertise, or indeed, what expertise do you bring to that climate negotiation? I think for your listeners, you know, one thing I want to offer is a little bit of context before I dive into my answer, because this COP, though it was my first one, I definitely had a lot of seasoned colleagues and mentors who acknowledged, and I saw it firsthand, how exceptional uh, COP27 was. And that was for a few reasons. I mean, first, right, the choice for it to be hosted in Egypt by the United Nations, where the human rights abuses that were actively going on while we were all in country at this conference, which necessitated things like a heavy military presence, which caused a lot of strains on civil society. I mean, everything from news sites not being available to apps being actually bugged and used as as trackers by the government, that has a very high price and really I think civil society stepped up to the challenge of that. Just as one example of how challenging that was, though, there were some really brave activists, particularly with People vs. Fossil Fuels Coalition, and there were indigenous activists as part of this group who were actually silenced and had their accreditation revoked after holding a simple banner that said People vs. Fossil Fuels during one of President Biden's speeches. And I bring that up just to say that you know, we haven't really seen that in that way at other COPs. It was also an opportunity, though, to show that movements really matter. And without a fully free society where the right to protest, the right to free speech, the right for free press are guaranteed, we can't actually hold governments accountable, corporates accountable, or any other power brokers that are a part of these climate conferences and are actively pursuing plans and policies driving the climate crisis. So that layered on top of the fact that we are in the worst global energy crisis since the 1970s. When Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a fundamental shift in the energy landscape that has been consistently unfolding, largely that fossil gas is being pushed as this false solution to climate change, to improving energy security to improving energy access in places, particularly like Africa, which are largely unfounded and the impacts are being felt unequally. And this was really on display at COP27. You know, prior to the conference, we saw how in Europe there were various governments who had been previously over-reliant on Russian supply of fossil gas were really scrambling, right? They were scrambling to reduce their energy demand through energy efficiency, but they were also trying to fill these supply gaps through importing more liquefied gas and coal um, from the U.S. and other Asian countries. And, you know, this drive to seek alternative fossil fuels contributed to spiked energy prices around the world. You know, you are living in the U.K. I know that you're feeling it. But there's also the other side, which is that because by and large European countries were able to outbid 
other nations that were also reliant on these imports. I'm thinking of of countries um, in parts of Africa, in Latin America, in Asia. It drove up the prices to unattainable levels for a lot of these places and created acute fuel shortages, spiked food prices, and power cuts that we saw. And so this push that we saw at COP27 to develop gas was in full force, and it's happening in this broader context. Just as one example, there were various memorandums of understanding that were signed between European countries, including but not exclusive to you know, Italy and France, the UK and African nations such as Mozambique and Senegal. Under this auspice of saying, you know, we're reducing energy poverty and we're increasing energy security by developing these gas resources. But in fact, these MOUs are basically another form of green colonialism. They are developing Africa's gas resources for European use largely. And it is not Africans who were in a place where Actually, post-COVID, we've seen more people without access to energy. These are not the people who are getting access to these resources that are being developed. I also just want to note that part of how this context affected negotiations was that civil society actually had to fight to reaffirm this 1.5 degrees Celsius goal in the cover text, which is Uh, For those of your listeners who maybe aren't as familiar, the cover text is basically a political text that comes out of every COP, and it reaffirms and lists the decisions that each party has agreed to. So it's sort of a roadmap, if you will, for what we can expect governments to pursue in terms of their energy and climate policies. And so... You know, we know as civil society, the IPCC has made very clear that the 1.5 degree C goal, which was a global commitment agreed to in 2015 in Paris by consensus, means that there can be no more oil and gas development. And that, in fact, every year emissions need to be going down between now and 2030. This would necessitate the complete phase out of fossil fuels. And so we as civil society, by just having to fight to keep the 1.5 degree C goal in the cover text, I think that is a really good vignette into how difficult these negotiations were, into how problematic a lot of the policy decisions coming out of this COP are going into, and how the context of this changing energy landscape It could be a major opportunity. Renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy on the market right now. It's one of the most versatile to be able to increase energy access in hard to reach places. And for some parts of the world, particularly in Africa, it's one of the most sustainable forms of energy because it's the highest potential. So I think as, as I'm processing this COP and as I'm Reflecting on your question about what did it mean for climate energy and extractives and for someone like me coming to COP, what did it mean? There was honestly a lot of disappointment 
there is a lot of hope because I think civil society is really going to continue to fight to make sure that we aren't just going to blow past this 1.5 degree Celsius guardrail. We're going to continue to fight outside of these cops to make sure that fossil fuels are not developed and that the countries most historically responsible are the ones leading the phase out so it can be equitable. But I think when you have countries who are coming to the negotiations, barely wanting to agree to 1.5 in the cover text, not agreeing to language for the full phase out of fossil fuels and actively pursuing deals to expand gas infrastructure, it we're we're in a problematic space. It's like that massive wake up call that, you know, just because we've got the Paris Agreement doesn't mean that any of us can sort of sit back and go, oh yeah, yeah, we just let everybody else get on with it. It's like, no, no, we are still in crisis. We are absolutely all hands to the pump. We need everybody to lean in. And, and your point about the role of civil society and 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 requirement for that uh, demand, I think, for better better ways of working and and taking action. On that note, Chelsea, I mean, we've been talking a lot about how business can put people at the heart of their climate action. We're Business Fights Poverty, that's the name of the podcast, and and the organisation behind us. For specifically for the extractives industry, which I know that you look at a lot, what does that look like? And and also how through the experience that you've had, how do we quite frankly not leave anybody behind as we transition to hopefully a greener economy? Yeah. So in the work that I do, you know, I'm I'm part of teams of people who look at this question from the perspective of how can our energy transition respect human rights and put people and planet over profit? And so, you know, I've discussed a bit about oil and gas at COP27. A majority of my work, though, focuses on the mining sector because of its tie to the energy transition. For those of your listeners who may not know, the transition to renewables under the way that we currently develop our energy will mean that there's going to be a dramatic increase in demand for minerals and materials that are used for, you know, the solar panels, the electric vehicles, the battery storage and other technologies that are going to get us to a cleaner energy system. And, you know, one sort of statistic that I like to share with people to sort of really put it into into context or ground the conversation is that the International Energy Agency does these really great reports every year. And they, they did one specifically on the role of minerals in the energy transition. And the statistic that they give in one of their reports is that under our current energy model, meeting the Paris goals could mean a quadrupling of mineral requirements for these technologies that I just named above by 2040. But, you know, we know that mining is a highly polluting, environmentally destructive industry. It is a known and pervasive abuser of human rights, particularly of women and indigenous people. It is notoriously corrupt. And the fact is that to date, neither government nor corporate policies and practices are doing enough to make sure that the, the harms of our current system are addressed 
to make sure that they aren't being replicated in our current transition, and to make sure that as we move towards a clean energy economy, the materials that are needed to make that work are produced in a way that is sustainable and is responsible. And so I'm part of domestic and global coalitions. And so what we would say and what we've been advocating for is for both businesses and for governments to be the ones driving systemic changes. In the mining sector, what we've been advocating for is reforms that would be integral for that sector to be rights respecting. So specifically what that would mean is plans, policies, and investments for prioritizing demand reduction, you know, over new mining operations to prioritize widespread recycling and reuse of materials to recognize and uphold the rights of indigenous people, particularly to the territories that they are currently on and historically have been displaced from, and their rights to free, prior, and informed consent. And I think this is particularly important because around the world, whether you're talking about uh, mineral reserves that are important for this mining um, sector, or you're talking about land and solar and wind potential, disproportionately, all of these resources are clustered where indigenous peoples currently live. In the United States, just as one example, there was a study done last summer that found that the vast majority of copper and nickel and lithium are within 35 miles of tribal reservations. And so when you look at impacts of the transition and who would be impacted if things continue the way they are, if business continues as normal, it's disproportionately going to be the same group of people that have been harmed by our current energy models. And so that brings me to sort of my my third point, which is that our group has been pushing for governments and businesses can play a huge role because we know that they have strong influence over governments. They have ability to meet their legislators as any citizen has the ability to do, but to really push for mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence that is gender responsive and that would apply for any new developments. It really is a sort of, as you say, that sort of change of business as usual. And, and, how how do we get that change to happen? Just thinking, you just touched on a little bit about some of the government levers. You're you're a specialist in policy advocacy. How do you see those policymakers potentially sort of changing tack? What would be your advice to them right now? Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest piece of advice because I think a lot of a lot of policymakers right now are we. You know, we hear this term just energy transition. And I think a lot of policymakers look at the emissions increases. They look at the projections that science have given us and they see this as a decarbonization problem alone. They see it as a just energy transition means switching our fuel sources, period, end of sentence. But actually that's not true, right? We know that it is by design that clusters of people who around the world are disproportionately 
black women, indigenous from other countries and termed migrants in the spaces where they immigrate to, they are the ones who are on the sort of receiving end of all the negative health impacts of the fossil fuel development, the mining development that we have used to get society industrialized, predominantly in the sort of quote unquote global north to this point. And if we continue to move towards a renewable energy economy that just transposes this extractive model, right, where it says we need quadruple the minerals that we're using now. And so we need new mines because of that, as just one example, that's not going to resolve any of the systemic discrimination, systemic oppression, systemic inequality that we see. And so because policymakers hold this power to legislate, I think it's really important that they look at key elements for transitioning our system beyond fuel switching. So that would include looking and transforming the role and behavior of corporations. That's why I say that mandatory human rights due diligence is a really sweet nexus where a government legislates it and then a corporation is mandated and accountable to follow it in their business operations. Policymakers should be looking at how resources are used and disposed of. I mean, circular economy principles where we're saying that recycling and reusing, you know, old batteries as one example, or the, the lithium that is in these batteries so we can help meet our demand is, is really critical because that could mean, you know, less mines being open less waterways being impacted, less people being displaced from their land, the list goes on and on. It also needs to look at who's gaining access to the benefits of energy and development in the process. You know, we hear this strong narrative, I hinted on it a bit earlier, but at COP27, I mean, the narrative was so pervasive that this dash to gas Africa, which I did not coin that term. That is the, that is from the Don't Gas Africa campaign led by really brilliant and strategic and fantastic organizers across the, the continent is being used to improve energy access. You know, it's just exploiting a situation where we can look at those contracts and see exactly the opposite is happening. So if we, if we don't question the policies that enable those processes to happen, we really do risk that the renewable energy transition could continue perpetuating the same human rights abuses, the same inequalities as it relates to gender, the same sorts of unsustainable practices that are harming the environment. And I think we're seeing a lot of increase in global inequality, and that's intricately tied to climate change and to how we manage our resources and how we treat our environment and people. So, you know, policymakers, I really think that this is a golden opportunity, right? We're at this moment in history where it's unprecedented. Humanity has not gone through anything like this before. And that's a really big opportunity to think differently, to do things differently, to let the ideas that, you know, civil society, grassroots organizations, indigenous peoples, 
people who are going through the problem and who have literally survived it for millennia, for generations, really let them take the lead, you know, see their ideas put into legislation and, and see what kind of improvements we can make. Yeah. And as you say, you know, you paint a pretty horrendous picture of the lack of outcomes from the COP27 this year. We clearly, hopefully will turn up to to buy of all locations in COP28 next year. How do we, given, you know, there are some pragmatic, practical, you know, tactical pieces that policymakers, business decision makers and civil society can take. But actually, quite frankly, how are we going to go from this standing point paralysis end of 2022 where I don't know about your media, but certainly the media here in this country where I'm sitting has, you know, moved on, quite frankly, climate change was last week. We'll move on to something else now. How do we get to COP28 for the world to show up and say, okay, right, we're going to make some action. Like, where's that hard work happening? What do we need to do? How, how do we get there? So a couple of things. The first is that I don't mean to to paint this doom and gloom picture. I mean, there's both sides of the coin happening. There is a lot of reason for concern and there's a lot of reason for hope. I think one of the biggest wins that we saw coming out of COP27 is the agreement for a loss and damage finance facility. I mean, civil society, I have colleagues that have followed this since the 90s. People have been pushing this for more than 30 years, have been experiencing the losses and damage of climate change for longer than that. And just as sort of a, a technical note, because I know that this term is thrown around a lot. I think it's one of the, you know, it can become a wonky term, but loss and damage is really the sort of irreversible impacts, some of which are, you know, have an economic amount attached to them, but some of them which don't, such a such as loss of culture, loss of life, loss of language because of shifts in culture. But it's a, it's a huge win that for the first time, because of civil society pressure, including that at COP27 where civic space was really restricted, that led to this huge win. And of course, there's still more to be worked out and done that we're going to see over the coming year in the in the sort of lead up to COP28 and hopefully at COP28, real discussions around what the the financing facility looks like. You know, is it going to be debt free financing as it should be, or is it going to be a lot more of what we've been seeing in in, in climate finance, which is disproportionately loans that are strapping countries into further debt and having to service debt repayments over providing, uh, you know, like better quality of life and more services for their own citizens. There's also questions of over who's contributing finance, who is going to be able to access that finance for how long and how much. So you know, there's a lot of possibility is what I'm trying to say that in the lead up to COP28, I think we're going to see, as we've always seen, the real leadership from the grassroots, from the people who have lived experience. Um, it's not just, you know, a word to them. It's it's very real consequence of what's happening to the places and the people that they love. 
and doing the work, coming up with the ideas, fighting the fight. I think the other thing that is sort of really important that civil society is going to have to contend with, and we will likely see campaigning around, at least I hope so, is the fact that this year's COP was in a country with a, a highly repressive government. And next year's COP is going to be hosted in the UAE, which is not any better. And so the real call for the connection between human rights and the climate crisis is very pressing. The real call for international solidarity is very pressing. And the challenge of keeping the attention and pressure on the issues that, like in COP27, were able to be given the attention and the pressure that they deserve, such as the the political prisoners like Allah, who have been literally in prison just for practicing free speech, making sure that's sustained after these conferences end. So I think in the lead up to COP28, there will likely be some really smart campaigning, some really great international solidarity that is going to continue to lift up these messages. So watch out, everybody. It's going to uh, yeah, hopefully ramp up. And, and uh, as Chelsea mentions, if you want to potentially get involved with any of this stuff, I suspect Oxfam might be a good place to start and, and find out more about it. Chelsea, my last question for you today. What next? Where are you going next? So really exciting things happening at Oxfam. Really appreciate you directing your listeners to us. We definitely have a lot going on. We're going to continue to do a lot of really exciting reporting that's digging into global inequality and really exposing some of the most pervasive actors that are perpetuating that system. So you may have seen our uh, Carbon Billionaires report that was released at this year's COP. If you haven't, really highly encourage you to check it out. So we'll be doing more of that. We're also building out a global campaign. Um, so that should be, you know, socialized and released in the coming year. And then personally, I'll continue to work with the groups that are fighting bad policies, frankly, in the U.S. A lot of my focus has been sort of what is being proposed around mining and what are recommendations um, and advocacy that can sort of push it in the direction that it should be going to make sure that, you know, the next generation has a better world to live in. Well, on that note, uh, Chelsea, a massive thank you very much uh, for your time and your thoughts and your insights today. Chelsea, thank you. Thank you. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.